You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and as always, before we get into this week's interview, Got to give it up to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp, of course, is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. You can join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. MailChimp also integrates with over 800 different services, everything from accounting to CRMs, all that kind of stuff. So I'm sure you can find a way to use it in your business as well. Sign up for a free account at MailChimp.com. Need a new domain for your next project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. Go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code BACKTOSCHOOL and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells fonts, graphics, photos, themes, and a whole lot more starting at only $2. They give away a selection of free goods every Monday. Of course, today is Monday. And they've got really great bundle promotions every month. And if you see something else that you like, use our promo code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. Now I've got two announcements to make. Uh, The first announcement is that we have a new survey available. Now the show has grown so much within the past year, and so in order for me to continue providing the show and offering new features that you all are looking for, I've got an audience survey for you to fill out. So you can head over to revisionpath.com forward slash survey and fill that out. Should take you about five minutes or so. I think there's four pages to the survey, but it's not super long. And everyone who submits a survey will be entered into a giveaway for a $100 Amazon.com gift card. Again, that survey is at revisionpath.com forward slash survey. That survey is going to close at the end of the month. So don't delay on that. Get on it. Second announcement is that Revision Path is opening a job board. Now, this is something that has been highly requested for a while, actually since uh, the last survey that we did. Um, And I know that there's a lot of talk out there about diversity in technology, diversity in design. And we've seen the headlines with companies like Facebook and Twitter that have these single-digit percentages of people of color as parts of their workforce. Well, this job board is going to have listings from companies that are serious about reaching out to designers and developers of color. So I've already got a few companies and listings on board. So if you want to sign up for news on when the job board launches, head over to our Twitter page, twitter.com forward slash revision path, and click the link in the pinned tweet that's at the top of the page. It's a eepurl.com link. It goes to a, a MailChimp list that you can sign up for. The job board is going to open this month. So If you want updates, make that happen. All right, now here is our Patreon fundraising campaign update. Of course, you know, patreon.com forward slash revision path. That's where you can also become a patron. We're now at 15 patrons for a combined total of $119 per month. Huge, huge thanks to everyone that has already pledged your support and appreciation for the show. It really does mean a lot, and I'm able to use that and put it right back directly into the show. So thank you so much. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some great perks like special giveaways, I know I'm doing some ticket giveaways this month, so you might want to get on that. Um, Early access to future episodes or a monthly Google Hangout with me and other Revision Path supporters, 
head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path. Make that happen. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month. All right, now let's get on with this week's interview. I know I've thrown a lot of news and stuff at you, so I want to go ahead and get started with that. I talked to Tiffany Michael. Tiffany is the CEO of Black Star Media, and she's the technology director of TransHack. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Tiffany Michael. I am the CEO of Black Star Media and the technology director of TransHack, which is a project of Black Star Media. Black Star Media is just a partnership between myself and Dr. Courtney Ziegler, and it's all about building virtual collaboration and education tools. Awesome. And we first met at South by Southwest this year. Yes. This was your first year going? Yes, my very first year. So I've been kind of like creeping for the last couple of years, like, oh, maybe I'll go. But this year, uh, uh, my co-founder, Courtney Ziegler, was speaking, and so I, I decided to come down. What did you think about it? You can be honest. <laughs> this is a safe space here. Absolutely. So- so, OK, I haven't I've never been before the idea of South by of like putting together, bringing together all of an industry's kind of most influential people. I like the idea of at South by, you know, everyone's kind of the same. It's all about just kind of learning new things. For me, what was disappointing is it seemed like most of the panels or sessions that had black speakers those sessions were about diversity rather than about like making cool stuff. Mm. And that was kind of unfortunate and sad, but I did have some fun at parties. (laughs) So yeah, the way that they did the diversity panels this year, and I I don't know if that's how they're going to, well, I don't want to say diversity panels to put a a finer point on it. The way that I think they did a lot of the black and Latino panels and presentations, they sort of segregated them off in one part of the convention center One thing that I found, and I didn't know this when I submitted my proposal, is that I guess the way that they did the programming, it ended up getting lumped in with something else. And that I thought was kind of weird just from like a marketing standpoint, because it felt like it took away from the general feel of the conference. Mm -hmm. And I know that the panel picker is is open now and people have have asked me, they're like, oh, are you going to? submit another panel for or a presentation or a proposal or something for next year. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I'll think about it. South by Southwest is a, it's an, I think, you know, it's probably one of those milestones that everyone wants to hit just in terms of either attending mm-hmm. or speaking there, mm-hmm. but it's grown so much over the years to the point where it's not really the place for the cutting edge stuff anymore. Yeah. And there's so many other events and conferences now that are smaller in scope more local, cheaper, that people can go to and get, you know, maybe a better type of value for their money. So Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's kind of just on folks' bucket list. And I might do it again, especially if I was marketing something, you know, really strategic about marketing and wanted to reach that particular audience. But as far as just kind of going to learn and geek out and be around other cool people, I think you're so right. There are so many other options that make more sense. So I want to congratulate you. Both you and Dr. Ziegler just received some grant money. Yeah. Uh, talk about that. Absolutely. Yay. So one of the Black Star Media portfolio projects is TransHack. Uh, TransHack is a hackathon and speaker series specifically for the transgender community and allies. It's been in existence since 2013. And actually, the cool thing is that uh, Dr. Ziegler and I officially met each other in person in real life at TransHack Chicago co-organized it when I was at Dev Bootcamp. So that's how we kind of got together and decided to become co-founders, which is really cool. 
Um, nice. But yeah, so Transact is awesome. And Transact just received a really large grant from the uh, Laura and Mark Andreessen Foundation. Yeah, the purpose of the grant is to develop a virtual hackathon series, virtual hackathon platform. And we'll be holding a series of events, virtual events, several app design sessions that all culminate to one big global virtual hackathon. Now, what have been some of the successes out of Transact since you've worked there? Yeah, so Transact Chicago was amazing. So Transact Chicago was held at Dev Bootcamp. I was on the founding team for Dev Bootcamp Chicago, and Courtney decided to bring Transact to Chicago. Uh, and that in itself was an, an amazing event. So several of the apps that came out of that hackathon have gone to live on. So two of the kind of most prominent, one of those is Red Remedy which is a healthcare app specifically for gender non-conforming individuals. And that was actually just featured in CNN Money a couple of weeks ago. So that app has continued to live on and that team has become an official organization. There was another app uh, called Transgress that was featured in Wired magazine. And it's all around, um, there's a lot of censoring that happens on the web specific to trans information for the transgender community. And so that particular app did really, really well. It's been featured. And so I think one of the amazing things about the TransHack hackathons is a lot of times at hack, it's it's rare that applications really live on beyond that weekend and really have meaningful impact. And I think the work that TransHack has done to create, really cultivate uh, rich development environments that aren't really just about cool technology, but really kind of solving problems that matter. And then this past winter, Transhack partnered with the Harvard Innovation Lab and did a series, uh, did a hackathon series for, specifically for the students in the Boston area that was really transformative for their communities. And so, yeah, there, there have been uh, online series of interviews where we have interviewed entrepreneurs, specifically tech entrepreneurs who are transgender. So really being a part of one of the so many organizations have come out, have been created from the community that Transhack has developed. And so it's really exciting to see, especially now when we're really having kind of a global discussion around what are the, the resources and rights for the transgender community. And so it's, it's been really exciting. And now Transhack is just one of other companies or, or other projects, I guess I should say, that are under sort of the Black Star Media umbrella. Is that right? Yeah. So right now, Blackstar Media essentially is, like I said, just a partnership between Courtney Ziegler and I. We met and we realized that we were two really smart people who had shared values. One of those shared values being that you can be really pro-Black, unapologetically Black, love your Blackness, and also really brilliant, but also really authentic to who you are. And we realized that some of that thinking was kind of radical, right? Yeah. And so we just kind of went on a mission to build and create spaces where that value was prevalent. So kind of so when I met when Dr. Courtney Ziegler and I decided to work together, I was at Dev Bootcamp. I helped Dev Bootcamp launch a Chicago location. And for those who don't know, Dev Bootcamp is a nine week intensive on-site learning environment where you can go from a beginner to a web developer in those short, that short period of time. And Dev Bootcamp was one of kind of the first, one of the first cold schools of its kind. And so now I'm a self-directed learner. And so I, the space of alternative education is really exciting for me personally. But and, and so it's been exciting to see this alternative education space kind of emerge. In 2013, when we launched Dev Bootcamp Chicago, we had 150 students. 
of those 150 students, five of them were Black. And it was a wake-up call for me because I really believe that it was all about access, right? It was all about access. So if we can, you know, lower the, the access barrier to technology careers, make it shorter, uh, make it a shorter experience rather than having to go get a four-year computer science degree if you didn't have the time or luxury to do that, then we would see an increase in diversity, right? That was what I thought in 2012. <laughs> but then you really start to see kind of it's more, there has more to do with kind of the culture of the space, these educational spaces, and how do people of color feel in these spaces? And so, yeah, I really just started to examine kind of like um, how do we create inclusive learning environments and kind of educational pedagogy that speaks to people of color specifically? And mm-hmm. is that a real thing? Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the start when Courtney Ziegler and I got together and we were like, OK, we're just going to like start building things around education for people of color specifically. And we're both web geeks, so it's there's going to be a, a really sexy virtual component. So that's what kind of the founding mission or, or the founding values of Blackstar Media. And since then, we've absorbed TransHack as a project. Blackstar Launch is another project. And then we're now working on a series of virtual collaboration tools that aren't necessarily specifically for people of color, but a set of tools that we think will will be really exciting for lots of different people. And these can be sort of like for online courses and things like that, right? One of the things that we want to try to do is make online learning more engaging. And so we're all familiar with kind of like the webinar setting. And, you know, there are lots and lots of different webinar tools, but they kind of all look the same. And it's really interesting. It's like there are so many rich tools right now. It, it's, it seems that the ed tech space has been slow at adopting some of that. And so kind of our mission is like, okay, how do we take everything that that comes with like sexy collaboration tools, integrate them into learning environments? And so what have you kind of learned about educational technology since really starting on this journey? Yeah. So when we started, we thought that we would just kind of a couple different models that we looked at that we really liked. So we really liked the creative live model. I had an opportunity to be a guest instructor on Creative Live in 2012, and it was such an inspiring experience. I loved everything about it. Um, oh, nice. I'm a big fan of the the General Assembly online learning model. I appreciate a lot about that business model. But over and over again, we would see that there were very, very few instructors of color. And as just someone who enjoys online education and who also happens to be a person of color, it was really disappointing for me to not see my lived experiences reflected in on the online education space because it was so huge. You know, everybody has taken a MOOC or Udemy or something. And so it was interesting. There's lots and lots of people of color who are in education. And so you would think that you would naturally see lots of black and brown courses online that are taught by people of color, but we didn't see that at all. And so when we started out, we we thought we would just be kind of recreating the creative live model or the general assembly model, but targeting people of color specifically. And we've, we've learned a lot. I think one of the things that we learned, it took us a little while to learn, was that people were kind of bored with the course format, just kind of like the traditional, I'm going to sign up for this course. People were kind of like over that And so it becomes really important if you want to engage people long term that you integrate 
the other different ways that they use to collaborate and talk to people like Twitter, like a Quora, like a other different ways that, that people communicate with each other. We really found that it was important to include that. And then also we held a virtual conference and, and we, we learned a ton as a part of our, the Inclusive Dev series was us asking the question, how do we make technology education specifically more inclusive? And so we explored kind of doing a, a series of, of technology classes and a series of technology interviews that spoke to Black culture specifically and just kind of as an experiment. And so we culminated that with a virtual conference. And we assumed that we would just kind of use some kind of third-party vendor tool to do the virtual conference. We weren't necessarily focused on the technology that much piece of it. We were more focused on the content at that point. Long story short, we evaluated a couple different tools because, as I said, the webinar kind of space, there it's really crowded, but surprisingly not much distinction among the folks in that space. So we evaluated a few different tools and kind of the basic things that we weren't weren't wanted weren't there. And so we were able to build our own platform with like CMS and some plugins and very little custom stuff happening. And even with that kind of really basic prototype, we received such positive feedback from all of the attendees. So simple things like attendees to talk to each other and share files with each other and to have information about the speakers in real time come on the platform, like just-in-time information as they're speaking without having to leave the room where the conference is happening. Like really small things like that that we were able to easily integrate, folks responded tremendously to it. That moment, that was kind of one of our huge moments of validation where we realized that it wasn't just going to be about creating more content that was, you know, led by Black instructors or that, that spoke to case studies that were most relevant to Black people, but really about kind of how do we change the technology to be more engaging. And so, yeah, we were really excited. And so, so now we're kind of, not kind of, I say kind of a lot and I shouldn't. <laughs> now we are exploring building out virtual collaboration spaces. Something that you mentioned earlier was that how you're, you know, kind of really a self-directed learner. And, you know, like you said, with these courses and these webinars, it, it can get stale pretty quickly because really on the, I guess, on the student's end, if you want to call it the student's end, they have to be really disciplined to like see it through all the way to the end. So with Creative Live, for example, those are oftentimes courses. Sometimes they're just one day. Oftentimes they're like two or three days long. So you have to kind of tune in every day, sit through it for about, I want to say those courses are about what, like six hours long, maybe a little bit longer than that. So you're sitting through all of that, taking notes or doing whatever, really having very little interaction if you you know get a recorded course. So it's basically like you're just watching a video that's being played back. I like the platform that you have set up. I spoke at one of the, I think it was Inclusive Dev. It was the Inclusive Dev event that you did. And yeah, the way that it's set up, there's so much interaction, I think, for different types of learners or people have different types of learning style there's visual stuff there's note taking there's twitter there's all these other components and you can basically like kind of mix and match however you want to interact with the presentation that's going on but it gives you more options than just presenter attendee yep yep absolutely and so yeah um yeah you you spoke at the very first conference so yay thank you for that (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, and, and so I think one of the really exciting things about that moment is what we realized that like we did this with like 
WordPress and plugins. So just imagine if like, okay, we actually took some time to do some custom development. And for the, we, we did another conference uh, about six weeks after that, where it was another experiment. We played with different set of functionality and we got a chance to kind of build out a little bit more features. But I, th- I think that was one, the really exciting thing is that all of the technologies that we need to make things more engaging, to make online education more engaging, they, they exist. Like they're not, it's not like we have to go in and invent and brand new things, but it is really exciting to think about the different uses of technology as it relates to education and really being able to speak to different kinds of learners. Just thinking about that, I have this tangent of like, so everybody's on this learn to code kick, which I think everybody should learn to code too, because I love to code. But I think there also has to be an equal emphasis on becoming subject matter expertise, becoming subject matter experts. Because what what I think is happening is that you've got a bunch of folks who know how to build, but they don't know what they should be building or why they should be building or who they should be building for. And yeah, I think it's just really unfortunate. I think we should, I think if we spend more time kind of like what asking questions around what should we be building, how should we be building instead of just like learning code, learning code, we will create more rich things. Yeah, I've heard that before where it's it's always better if you're building like a project of some sort instead of just like going through lessons because then when you really do need to build something, those lessons don't really come into play in the same way. It's It's not a it's not an instant recall type of thing. Whereas if you're building something and you're kind of learning as you're going along, you, you become a lot more flexible with what you learn. Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of project-based learning, especially now. So, you know, all of these tools like Code Academy are really, really popular. And I love Code Academy. It is a great introduction to programming concepts. But And I've, I've, I have a couple of people in my life who are like learning to program. And so I'm like, they're supporters. And I'm like, okay, so what are you doing? They're like, oh, well, I went through another Code Academy tutorial. And I'm like, another one? You've been doing Code Academy for like months. What have you actually built? (laughs) You know, I think some of us are like checklist learners. And you think that maybe if you just kind of like check off these things, I did these five tutorials, now I can develop. And it's like, no, you, you don't really know it until you are actually able to apply it. And so, yeah, just start, think of something that you want to build and then break that down into steps. So one thing that I want to talk about, and we you know, sort of touched on this a little bit earlier, has to do with fundraising. So I know that Dr. Courtney Ziegler, for example, <laughs> I know that he often talks about on Twitter, you know, kind of the, the struggles that come with fundraising and what that means when you're trying to sort of build a business. And I think when people think of how they do fundraising, they're looking at, I need to get seed funding. I need to get Series A, Series B, et cetera. Or they may look at, oh, I need to do a Kickstarter campaign or or something to that effect. And you all sort of went the route of applying for grants. Now, was that sort of part of just the the strategy of how you would do fundraising? Or what are kind of the pros and cons of of going that route? Not at all. Not at all. So, yeah. So we received this grant. And so it it actually... We weren't necessarily like seeking out, I won't say we weren't seeking out grants. We were, we were actually applying for lots of grants <laughs> that we didn't get. The grant game, I'll call it, is similar to other methods of fundraising where it's it's really relationship-based as well. So really having to, to cultivate those relationships. But we, we got that grant because we were out doing the work and someone took notice of it and kind of tapped us. So to answer the question about like, was finding grants in the strategy, I think, yeah, we were definitely looking for 
funds of money. We didn't necessarily want to give a whole lot of equity and we weren't necessarily interested in the structured accelerator programs um, just because we like have whole lives and we can't really like, yeah, a lot of the structures of accelerators didn't work for us in our lives. But yeah, so we were open. We wanted, (laughs) we we definitely need capital. Well, it was a small part of our strategy. It's part luck, you know, we got luck, but I think that that luck comes from, we were just kind of grinding and doing things. And I think one of the things is we have to remind ourselves internally, Courtney and I are both doers. We think of an idea and like we start doing it. We create the MVP and we start talking to people and we just start doing stuff. And I think we sometimes it can be a bad thing because we spend all of our time building and not enough time kind of selling and, and selling not that just directly to customers, but like talking about the work that we're doing and showing people here, look what I built. It's just let's build something else. Let's build something else. And so I think it became a benefit for us because we had produced such a, a lot of work. We had d- done a lot of things and someone finally took notice of that. But kind of to your larger point of different ways of fundraising. Yeah, one of the things that's become really clear for me to see is we decided to do a friends and family round, you know, after we had exhausted kind of our nest egg. We're like, okay, we're going to do a friends and family round. And we started doing, you know, research on like, okay, how do these friends and family rounds work? And what we realized is that, you know, we could only really take money from people who were accredited investors, meaning that they either made more than $200,000 a year or had a net worth of more than a million dollars. And we started to realize that, you know, we've got a handful of well-off friends, but, you know, most of the folks in our personal network aren't rich. And you start looking at the fact that if you look at the average net worth for Black people in America, it's about $76,000. So way off what is needed to be an accredited investor. And so that, you know, dynamically changes, you know, what a friends and family round looks like for most average people of color. And a lot of times when you're having these fundraising conversations, it's just kind of a grant, it's taken for granted that you have all of these people in your network who have a high net worth when most of us don't. And so that was kind of an initial hurdle that we had to get over. Like, wow, I can't just like, my uncle might be able to loan me $5,000, but if my uncle doesn't have, isn't at the point where he can be an accredited investor, I really can't, you know, his $5,000 is really just a loan and not an investment. So that was something interesting for us to find out. And then, yeah, so I, I think I think it's huge. I think there there is so much work that has to be done before you're ready to raise a seed round that we don't we just don't talk about it all, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, I remember I read this post on Medium not too long ago, and it was sort of talking about the same thing about how it's really important, at least for some, you know, for minority business to try to raise that seed funding, because what happens is it's hard to even get the idea off the ground at that point. So you can't iterate it into something bigger when you're still just kind of in those really nascent stages where it's make or break, you know, as it relates to funding. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of my pet peeves at the moment is the amount of resources that are spent on panels to educate people on VC funding and specifically educating people of color on VC funding when those resources could actually be spent helping people get traction for their businesses. <laughs> and so I just think there are a lot of like misguided resources and hopefully 
that changes. Well, I think it's like how, how Chris Rock said in one of his his comedy bits, the money's in the medicine. Yep. Like the money's not in the cure. Yep. The money's in the medicine. Yep. That's like <laughs> So yeah, I mean that money could definitely be put towards like smaller little funding rounds yep. as opposed to we're gonna create this conference and we're going to bring all these people in who are going to get paid (laughs) to speak and just basically like talk about the problem without really offering any tangible concrete solutions. And then everyone sort of goes home and pats themselves on the back, you know, and nothing really, the cycle continues essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really, really frustrating. So how did you first get involved with technology? I know I was looking through your your LinkedIn profile, and you originally kind of started out studying English. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, it's funny because somebody asked me a, a similar question last night, and so it really gave me the opportunity to think about it. Uh, <laughs> so my dad worked for IBM in like the early 80s, early 90s. And that just meant I had a PC in my house really early. I, like I had the first modem on the block. And so like kind of grew up all around tech, an 80s baby. But I always was kind of just geeked out. So I, I, when I think about kind of the, the I was, wasn't a gamer, not necessarily an artist in the traditional sense. I kind of geeked out around word processing tools. <laughs> and I know that sounds super <laughs> lame, but, you know, because I was an English major, and so I was really into like reading and writing. And I learned a lot of my early hacks just from like word perfect hacks. I was always kind of like a super user. And then I got to a point where I was like, OK, I got to earn a living. <laughs> As an English major, you kind of taught or that's it. And so I, I had an opportunity to intern at an organization called IC Stars. And IC Stars is, is all about kind of project-based learning. And what they do is they build applications for community-based organizations. They recruit young adults from that community to do the development. And, you know, you don't have to have any technology experience, just kind of, you know, have to be competent, kind of smart and want to build apps for these organizations. And so I spent a summer building an app for an organization that focused on you know, uh, disability accessibility. And I was kind of mind blown after that. I uh, wouldn't stop. <laughs> and so um, that was 2006. Uh, and so at the time I was building in Drupal and uh, .NET and just kept going. I'm at the time, Accenture used to do these Java boot camps where it was like a 30-day Java crash course where at the end you had to build something. You got paid like a minimum wage. But then at the end of the 30 days, that's how they decided who they were going to hire. And so participated in one of those boot camps and I got hired. And so spent the first five years of my professional career at Accenture. And then from there, where you were working with Dev Bootcamp, is that right? So, you got that started? Yeah, so there's a little bit of break in between. So, so I, I took actually took a three month. So at Accenture, I started as a Java developer. I only actually only got a chance to build a few custom apps in my role there. So Accenture does a lot of you know big corporate consulting, which is usually like all about ERP. Uh, so I did a lot of like SAP, Oracle configuration interfaces kind of things. Not stuff that's not really fun. And so I knew I wanted to be doing something else with my tech. And I I took a three-month sabbatical to kind of, like, figure it out. At the time, social media was really hot. Like, it it was becoming a thing, like a buzzword. You know, it existed (laughs) way before. But at that time, kind of, like, folks were talking about it. And I went to, like, a a tech cocktail event and, like, put a fishbowl, a little bowl on the table and, like, drop your card here if you want social media consulting. And... Long story short, that's kind of how I just got my first few clients. 
where I started doing social media consulting and kind of like uh, development work around that. Salesforce was hot, which was really just taking off at the time as a development environment. And so did a lot of force.com customization work. And so I spent kind of two and a half years kind of just floating, doing independent consulting, trying to like figure out what I was going to do with my life, what I was going to do with my tech. I participated in a the Chicago Lean Startup Competition where I came together with a team and we built an app and it was exploring a group travel idea. None of us on that team were really passionate about enough about that idea to kind of keep it going. So I was kind of like, I know I want to build something, but I, I needed a team to do it with. And so I was kind of, you know, looking for my team, looking for like, what do I care enough about to build a company around? At the same time, because I am a self-directed learner, there were all these conversations about kind of, you know, the value of a college degree kind of conversations. And especially as all of these kind of uh, boot camps were emerging. And so because of my background, I started having those conversations, particularly kind of I'd like to talk about, you know, I did some work with Dale Stevens, who runs something called Uncollege, where it gives a gap year to high school students and allows them to kind of travel the world and learn outside the classroom before they go to college. And I appreciate Dale because he he sparks a lot of conversations around kind of how we learn in this country specifically and, you know, whether education, traditional education helps or hurts in a lot of different ways. And so it was a conversation that, that, that it was a space that I felt like I had a lot to contribute to, specifically around what does a self-directed learner mean for a person of color, specifically a Black person. Those of us who are Black, and otherwise other folks may know too, is that the narrative that we're told as Black people is that traditional education is the only way to social mobility. Like you get your degrees or you are nothing is what's told to Black people. And so it's interesting that like, so there's this, this whole kind of wave of like, you know, screw college, just learn to code kind of conversations that were happening. And I think missing from that is like, okay, well, what is the implication of these conversations for black people in America specifically? So as I was kind of becoming publicly speaking in these alternative education spaces, I got connected with Dave Hoover who is the founder of Dev Bootcamp Chicago. And he was kind of like, hey, you want to come play with us? And then I was like, sure. And so helped Dev Bootcamp launch a Chicago location. And, and that was, you know, it was a great experience. I'm still friends with Dev Bootcamp. This is kind of my advice to, you know, entrepreneurs who know they are founders, know they have the entrepreneurial spirit, but haven't found like their team and haven't found like the startup idea that they want to pursue is to just kind of play with other entrepreneurs who are in the spaces that you're interested in. And that was what my dev bootcamp experience was about. It's like, okay, hey, I'm, I'm, I geek out with this alternative education space. I'm a developer. I'm going to come play with this startup for a little while. And it was a great experience. We were acquired in June of 2014, shortly after I met Courtney, who's my co-founder. And so it was great timing. It was like, okay, now it's time to take you know, what I've learned over the last five years of just kind of like uh, playing with other entrepreneurs and exploring different spaces. And now that I have a team, it's time to kind of move forward with, with my own vision. What keeps you motivated and inspired to kind of continue with this work? Oh boy, it's tough. So I'm a founder. I'm an entrepreneur. I just am like, there are days when I don't want to be, <laughs> trust me. There are days where I'm like, 
I hear you. <laughs> I'm going to just like go get a job. <laughs> but it's not in me. It's not in me. Like, I think one of the things, and, and I know this this may sound like arrogant or egotistical or grandiose or whatever, but it's how I feel. So I'm going to say it. Continuing to be in spaces with people who you think are really smart, who have a lot of power and influence, who are not really that smart. <laughs> who are not really that smart and are not really like making good decisions. Once you like continue to like see that over and over again, like, whoa, I thought you were smart and you were not. <laughs> then you realize that like, okay, I am really smart and I have to bring, like I have a responsibility to bring my vision to life. It may sound crazy for, for folks who don't feel that calling, but for folks who do feel that calling of like, okay, I'm supposed to be doing my thing because it, it deserves to be out here. It deserves to live and that doesn't go away. So yeah, that's what keeps me inspired, what keeps me going. I like to build cool things. And I know that having had lots of experience kind of like working for others, and not to say that I won't ever work for other, another, someone else again, but just I know in traditional employee, employer arrangements, you generally don't have the room to kind of bring your vision to life in the way that you want and that makes sense to you. And so for me, that, that's what keeps me going. Where do you see yourself maybe in the next like five years? Like it's 2020. What do you think you'll be working on? Scaling Black Star Media. And so it'll be, as mentioned, Black Star Media is all about building virtual collaboration tools that help make education more engaging. And so in five years, I hope that, you know, one of our products will be, you know, adopted on some mass scale and will have, you know, truly shifted the virtual education space. That is the vision. Are there any other developers out there that you admire or look up to? Do you, or do you have any any mentors yourself? There are certainly other, particularly other Black women developers who I just appreciate their visibility. Daphne LaRose is one, Black female coders uh, she runs. Tiffany Ashley Bell, a handful of others, uh, other specifically Black women developers who I really appreciate and admire just because it's a lonely road. <laughs> it's a, it can be a lonely experience sometimes of, you know, always being the only one in spaces dealing with, you know, the microaggressions with, that come along with that. And so, yeah, I appreciate and admire and celebrate all the uh, Black women developers that I see. As far as kind of like technology heroes, I'm probably going to kick myself when we get off and be like, oh, I should have said so-and-so. But not, no, <laughs> no one is particularly coming to mind right now at this moment. Yeah, I'm probably I'm, I know I'm going to be like, oh, you should have shouted out so-and-so. But <laughs> <laughs> at this moment, one of the things that's been real for me and, and it's tough in, in finding mentors is that which is another reason why Courtney and I make awesome an awesome team is that we are not respectable at all whatsoever <laughs> in any way. Shape or form. When, when, when you say not yeah, respectable, yeah, yeah un, unpack that a little sure. bit. Kind of, I alluded to it earlier about, I think we fight so much as a people against stereotypes and against prejudices that we have told ourselves internally that to be respected by white America, to be respected by mainstream America, you have to be this certain way. You have to have a degree from this place and you have to mention that often and you have to feel like that defines you. You have to wear suits and ties often. You, you know, watch your language kind of things like 
don't be a basic, a real feeling human being, like be a robot <laughs> is mm-hmm. what I think the message is sometimes, unfortunately. And, and I understand it, but it's ridiculous. And I, I reject it. And so because of that, all throughout my educational career and kind of just growing up as a really smart black woman, I was often told that like, yeah, you're really smart, but these are the things, the steps that you have to take to be successful. You can't just like follow what you're passionate about, the kinds of problems that you want to solve, the places in the world you want to live, the kinds of things, you know, industries that geek out on. You're often told it's like, this is the path to success as a black person. Follow these steps. And hearing that from mentors, well-meaning mentors, too many times I've had to like kind of reject the advice of from well-meaning mentors and, and just kind of pave my own path. And so that's been the challenge of like, I'm going to work in the spaces that I want to work in. I'm going to be really truly authentic to who I am as an individual. It's so funny, especially in the tech space. It's, it, we still see a lot of like put on a suit and tie in tech spaces when everybody else has on jeans and flip flops. Like, I don't get it. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. I mean, and, and that's, you know, it's just not it's not just the suit and tie. It's just the idea that like you can't be a whole person. You have to be like buttoned up and conservative and reserved, even if that's not who you are. And Courtney and I reject that all day. <laughs> And so, yeah, it, that, that's been one of the challenges in finding mentors. There are definitely are some people. So Sandy Castro, who is the CEO and co-founder of IC Stars, the technology organization that I interned at almost nine years ago at this point, is someone who I really respect and admire. And yeah, just one of the things that I've learned from her is how real the invisibility of the Black woman in the world is, but just especially in the tech space is. And how hard it is for Black women to gain credibility as tech founders. And what that often means is that there's even more pressure for Black women to fit into that, like, respectable, always be politically correct kind of thing because we have to fight so hard for that credibility in the first place. And while I realize that is a reality and, you know, folks have different ways of dealing with it, I have just personally decided that I'm going to be who I am no matter what. And just hope and know that, like, my brilliance is going to speak for itself. And that's why I've kind of really been right now, like, in my life, just focused on being heads down and building awesome, amazing things. And it's less about the kind of who you know game, because I've realized that, like, I've definitely developed and cultivated relationships always. But what I've noticed is that if you decide to reject kind of the respectability, then you better damn well build some awesome shit. And so I'm mm-hmm. I'm heads down focused on that. Yeah, that the emotional labor that comes with representing in this space, you know, when you're black man, black woman, et cetera, adding that sort of respectability layer on top of it is just uh it's so stifling. It's so stifling because like you said, it's about or or it should be at least, at least that's what's being parroted, is this uh narrative about being authentic, like being your authentic self and all that sort of stuff. But what happens when your authentic self is not, I don't know, I guess it's not a fit, you know, maybe not a culture fit or something like that. And, and I'm, I'm thinking of this in the realm of tech companies. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you know, tech companies are starting to re-release their diversity numbers for this year. And there's not much change. I mean, I don't I didn't think there would be much change from one year to the next. But it just strikes me as odd that you have these big companies that have clearly flush with capital, flush with talent. And this seems to be the one thing that they just can't like solve for some reason. 
You know what I mean? As it relates to finding talent or, or finding people. And, and I think respectability plays a lot into that Absolutely. because you, you think about how companies do recruiting. They're recruiting and they're only looking at certain sort of pipelines. So they're looking at certain schools. They're looking at certain kind of – I don't want to say pedigree. That's not the, the right term I'm using. But they're looking at these certain sort of qualifications and factors when they could be overlooking someone that maybe didn't go to that school yeah. or wasn't a part of this accelerator or whatever – but they still make really dope shit. Mm-hmm. But because they don't fall within that template, it's like, oh, I don't know if that's, you know, kind of what we're looking for or whatever. Absolutely. It's racism. And that's why we should be building our own stuff. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think there is lots of work to be done. The The economic inequality that comes from discriminatory hiring practices is definitely something that should be addressed. At the same time, technology can be the great equalizer if it's about we're going to build something that the market wants and support, raise the capital to actually market it and get traction for it versus I'm going to spend all of these resources trying to get an old boy system network to change its ways. Um, yeah. The fight for fair hiring practices is so important. But as you talked about, kind of that emotional, <laughs> the, the emotional trauma that comes with, you know, trying to fit in and all of that. I think it's really important for us to just create spaces where we say, OK, let's spend even more energy focused on building for ourselves and, and creating our own companies and spaces. And actually, that sort of circles back to what you were talking about with South by Southwest, because I felt like a lot of the diversity talk, which is what you mentioned a lot of it was really about how do we get these networks to change and like let us in, you know, and we're talking about in Silicon Valley, one small part of a large country with lots of different, you know, little ecosystems where people are building and creating things. And I don't see why the narrative is so focused on we got to get into Twitter. Yep. We got to get into Facebook. And, I, and maybe it's because they have these large user bases. Maybe it's because their products do affect hundreds of thousands of people in many different ways. Maybe they're looking at it as sort of like the big grand, you know, the big grand goal that has to be met. But I feel that the the problem of focusing the narrative strictly on that is you end up ignoring so much other stuff that's happening Mm -hmm. in other places because you're so focused into getting into Silicon Valley. And even then, just getting there is only half the battle. One of the things that I, I talk about often is like, okay, you talk about like there being 2% of the tech workforce in, in Silicon Valley is black. You know, what do you think life is like for that 2%? Just sending, you know, another 1%. What do you think life is like for that 3%? And like, yeah, how yeah. much are we putting, creating resources and communities that really help support that two, three, four, you know, single digit percentages? Because it's emotionally exhausting. Yeah, I mean, we talk about, so I love the code. I love tech. But we, I think a lot of times we talk about it and make it like so sexy, right? But it's not really sexy when like <laughs> you're trying to get this bug to work and you've like spent the, your whole entire weekend staring at a terminal in your house by yourself and you have nobody to pair with because all your developer friends are like not people you want to hang out with. And so you just spend like all of your time kind of like solving your technology problems by yourself because you're the only black woman on your team and 
There are layers of things, and I think it's important for us to have real conversations about what are we doing to actually support the people who are there. And then once, you know, for all of this, this, these influx of new developers, what are we doing to actually help them to continue to develop skills, to continue to get better and better? Like there are enough intro to JavaScript, intro to object-oriented programs that exist. I mean, I think you should you still want to have events that kind of become like the gateway into the, the industry. But then beyond that kind of intro, like, okay, I can build a basic CRUD app. Like, now, now that I really actually either want to have the skills to be a valuable engineer on a team like Twitter, or I actually want to build a robust product that can be used by lots and lots of people, where do I go to get support in that next level? And I think there aren't enough spaces that are there. Yeah, what you don't want is to have that pipeline sort of go into a meat grinder, yep. to use that analogy where... Yeah, there's a lot of these intro programs that are prepping people to enter the workforce or enter these companies. But, you know, then they get there and then maybe it's not a good culture fit Mm -hmm. because, yeah, you may have the skills to get in. But I think as we all know, when it comes to getting jobs, it's not just about what you know. You know, it's about when you get there, how do you manage the politics of working there with your manager, with other team members, things of that nature? Is the company inclusive to these new people that are coming in. And we're not, I mean, we're not just talking about people of color. I mean, we're talking about anyone, I think, that is kind of starting on that intro route. But people of color specifically end up having to deal with a little bit more as it relates to, like we say, microaggressions, emotional trauma, things of that nature. Because you're being put in this this environment where you know, chances are you're probably going to be the minority. You know, in some cases, maybe a double minority, triple minority, whether we're talking about gender or sexual orientation or anything else, it takes its toll on you. Absolutely. I have conversations probably every day with friends of mine or colleagues of mine or acquaintances of mine who are black technologists who are dealing with that at some level. And, you know, it's way too often they get to a point and it's like, I love what I do, but I'm sick of dealing with this. So I'm going to go do something else. And it happens so often. And it's that's why it's infuriating that we aren't having more public conversations about it because it, it's so sad to see someone put so much time, energy, effort into going into an industry that they're initially excited about. But then after two, three, five years in it, they're like, whoa, like I still love to code and I'm probably going to code on the weekend, but I'm going to do something else professionally because this doesn't feel good. Yeah. yeah. That's real. That's, that's so real. (laughs) Absolutely. One thing that I, I saw on your LinkedIn profile, you mentioned that that being a mom is one of the main reasons that you work so hard yes. to kind of make a better place. I mean, I know, you know, we kind of just, I don't know, spent the last 10 minutes or so maybe bashing the industry. But do you think that, that collectively we're really starting to kind of push the needle forward with that? You know, I think so. And I love the space. Like I said, I, I think tech can be an equalizer in, in many ways. The part of the story where I was kind of talking about, well, I, I was an English major and then I decided to do this internship. The reason why I decided to do the internship is because I had my son, Cameron. And so at that point, it became really important that I like make some money uh, and, and have some security. And Cameron was actually born premature. He was born, I was six months. He was a pound and a, one pound, one ounce when he was born uh, and spent six months in the NICU, in the intensive care and spent about you know a year after that dealing with different medical issues. He's now nine and 70 pounds and perfect. But during that time, it became 
really urgent for me to find a way to make some money that still allowed flexibility. And so finding Icy Stars and realizing that, oh, snap, I can build stuff for people from my house was huge for me. Like It was such a gift to find technology as a livelihood because it, it meant that as a parent, I was could earn a living and take care of my child, but be flexible enough to still be very present in his life. And so, you know, I say all that to say that I love what technology as a career can do for economic mobility and flexibility. The emotional piece that we just talked about is, is though, is something that it's tough to reconcile. And, you know, I was, you know, at a conference last weekend, I won't say which conference it is to protect the innocent, but it kind of, you know, was, there was one other black woman there, you know, hundreds and hundreds of of white men, which is cool. Like, you know, you deal with it, but you know, one of the frustrating things is you, you, you know, you get sick of kind of like, it's assumed that you're here as like the marketing person or like the whatever, because black women can't be developers kind of things. And you know, Or the new thing with conferences now is that you're the you're the diversity scholarship. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yep. Those moments, you're just kind of like, you. we want to be optimistic and you want to be hopeful that things will change, but it, it's slow. It's, it's really slow. And, and I think there are small pockets of places where, where folks get it right. Just kind of slow ad- adoption by the rest of us. Who is getting it right? I can't really shout out like any corporations or companies or anything like that. But I, I think there are small communities. So I can speak here in Chicago. So the, the organization Icy Stars that I mentioned, uh, mm. Emil Cambry mm. runs Blue. And so I think there are small pockets of places where people of color who are developers can go and feel supported. Had your blog, I appreciate you know being able to see other people of color who are in technology who are like talking about the things that they build and talking about, you know, their unique experience without it being about, quote unquote, being the diversity token. Yeah. So, yeah, I I think, you know, it's just slow adoption. We'll get there. It's it's funny. I enjoy that I can keep it real on your show. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Please do. Please do. So I now call... And, you know, nobody likes me anyway, so (laughs) I can say what I want to say. But I now call the diversity conversation like the little kid table of tech. Because, you know, you kind of think about in the holidays, you know, there's a little kid table and the adult table. And like the real conversations, the real stuff is going down at the adult table. You know, know, I got you. um, And just because I think it's become a distraction in, in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's something that I struggle with because... Of course, you see that there's a problem. You see that steps have to be taken to address the problem. But then kind of going back to, to the conversation we had about, you know, resources being spent on people telling Black entrepreneurs how to get VC funding instead of funding their companies. We see it in tech also where, you know, you've got this these kind of folks who have this, you know, diversity focus and they spend, you know, all of these time and resources having these diversity, quote unquote, conversations but not those same resources actually training folks in a real way and supporting them in a real way and giving them the career guidance they need to like move into management positions and senior positions where they are actually doing the hiring. And so, you know, my thing now is like I'm over the, the conversations that happen at the little kid table. Like I want to be at the table where like real decisions are being made and real things are being built. Amen to that. Yeah. 
Well, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you online? Yeah, so blackstarmedia.org is our website and it links to the different projects and products that we're working on. At Black Star Launch is our Twitter handle. And then at Michael Solution, M-I-K-E-L-L Solution is my Twitter handle. Hit me up. All right. Sounds good. Tiffany, Michael, thank you again so much for coming on the show, for talking to me, not just about the work that you're doing, you know, with Black Star Media, with Transact, but also just your journey and being a black woman in this space. I mean, I think it really means a lot. The optics, the visibility of seeing someone like you that's out here doing it, that's getting money, that's building solutions. You know, that's your Twitter name is Michael Solution. You're building solutions. So thank you again so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Maurice, for having me. And thank you for your work. I really appreciate everything that you do as well. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Tiffany Michael and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Tiffany and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. When it comes down to email marketing, MailChimp makes it extremely simple. They have really great reporting and autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover, of course, is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code BACKTOSCHOOL at checkout. And lastly, there's Creative Market, which is a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to creativemarket.com and pick up those six free goods that are available for free every Monday. And if you see something else that you like, use our discount code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Mandre with intro audio by Yellow Speaker. The outro audio, this is my tape for you, is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you're subscribed to us on iTunes. Leave a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month, and you'll get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.